Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now, my hairy mai. I'm John McDonald. Kia ora and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday, the 3rd of March, and welcome to autumn. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we go back in time with our two local history series, one on early Eastbourne from the 1981 interviews where Claire Toondby talks with Bill Baker tonight on Bill's father's role in the 1920s and 30s and the other from Upper Hutt Library's 2014 Heritage Archives, where Sir George Chapman talks on his life with Jane Cherry, and this episode is how he moved up the National Party leadership ranks. The poem tonight is from Eastbourne and suitably seasonal, and there is plenty of local music from Upper Hutt, Rene Maurice, Dagger Rose, Paul and Wayne Mason Shutters, uh, who play this weekend at Expressions, Marion Anderson's Dance Band with Beach Dancer, and Upper Hutt's Holt with Hesitate. But let's start the show and hear a poem from a regular contributor, Eastbourne's Emmanuel E. Garcia. air. We have leaned our way downward. It wasn't long, or was it, since the old guitarist wove something or other when the dusk grew thick and the girl paused to watch his bony fingers, when the old dog perched its massive head over the encircling wall and waiters cursed the emptiness. There was a rim of finer light above the hills. The sea was strewn with flowers. So we smiled, welcoming the chill, choosing to remain. Soon enough, we would be on the move. Like threads, we wound ourselves. Like tendrils, we aspired on that delicious night. Charred words, careless steps, drunk with knowing and unknowing. In the land of diminishing foliage, all streams converge. And that was Autumn Air from Emanuele Garcia of Eastbourne. Okay, time for more local recollections in the 1981 series where Victoria University of Wellington PhD student Claire Toonby talks with Eastbourne residents on their family life in the early decades of the 20th century. Today we hear more of her talk with Bill Baker, with contributions from his younger brother Peter and some other family members join in as well. Thank you. 
who helped out, for instance, when other children were born? You had a younger brother, didn't you? Well, he was born in he was born in Washington. Yes. I was stayed with that What about your father? He looked after himself. Do you know if your mother helped other people who were sick or you know, needed shopping no. done uh, a little bit off colour? There wasn't much of that sort of thing. No, I don't think so. Uh, I can't uh, recollect anything like that. Other people would uh, pop in and say, look, I'm going down the, the bay, do you uh, want anything at the shops or anything like that? Ah, yes. In fact, if you get that in Eastbourne here, this morning there was somebody wasn't very well and the other people regularly call in and ask if they, you know, she needs help. Well, that, that was a short bit on your mother. Uh, you can another uh, one to uh, uh, your father. Um, where did he work exactly? He worked for the Shore Savile. Oh, yes. So that would be quite uh, a big uh, firm, you know. Uh, I, I don't know. You, you uh, wouldn't actually ever have visited his office. He was mostly down on the short sailboat ships. Oh, I see. When they yes. came in, yes. now, he was a marine engineer. He served his oh, time at cables. He used to do mostly survey work. And when the short sailboat ship came in, he would go down and uh, see the chief engineer on board. The chief engineer might say, "There, look, uh, the bills aren't paying up, and so on and so on. I want you to make arrangements to." Uh, get somebody to come in and have a look at that, or I want a, a half a dozen washers for this, or we want that, or we want that, see, and uh, so uh, Dad would then go ashore and he'd bring up cables, or he'd bring up one of the other firms, uh, Nivens or something like that, yes. and say, look, such and such a ship down the property wharf, uh, they've got a bilge pump, would you uh, fix it up and send the bill to me at such and such a place, or something like that. Yes, Give me a quote on how much it's costing. So he was mostly on that work. He never had a, a proper office, though he did go into the office using the phone or something like that. Yeah, he, he, but he'd mainly, mainly work away from an office situation mm. in any case. What sort of hours? Oh, he would, uh, when the ships were in, there might be, say, three or four short sailboat ships in loading at once. Uh, sometimes he'd never get home until the last boat, which used to leave uh, Wellington, what, at uh, 11 o'clock or something like that in those days. What about stunting? Yes, he catch seven o'clock right here. At least on some occasions he did very long hours indeed. But what about some of average? Well, the average was seven o'clock boat uh, in in the morning and uh, quarter past five boat home at night. Yes, yes. And Saturday morning. And Saturday morning. Uh, was he a member of the trade union? I don't know. Mm -hmm. well, what about his political associations? Did you, did you talk about it? Well, he, he wasn't, was a good labour. He was a good labour, all right. Personally, because uh, I can remember them talking about uh, Walter Nash and going to a uh, detention camp because they wouldn't go to the First World War. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, uh, that sort of got him back at that liberal, liberal party in those days. Well, what sort of jobs would you find of them around the house? Oh... The handyman, he was always fixing something. He made a lot of toys for my brother and myself. Oh. How about gardening? He wasn't a keen gardener. Good vegetable garden, yes, you had to if you wanted vegetables. That keep you fairly well stocked up with fruit and vegetables. 
What about housework, washing dishes? Oh yes, he dry the dishes for Mum, or if he washed them, either myself or my brother would dry them. If we didn't turn the ringer, he'd turn the ringer. What, what about playing games with your children? No, not much. We seem to make our own fun. Uh, when we were small, yes. He didn't take you to his workplace. Did he, did he take you to sports or anything like that? You know, like yes, he was very keen on football and uh, mm -hmm. he used to, uh, I can remember him taking me to uh, Athletic Park when I was very small. Is that often? When there was a big game on, yes. Yes, when the big game And what about his, uh, any other sort of hobbies and interests that he might have had? Always keen on making something. Yes. And, uh, he had his workshop with his lathe and all that sort of thing in it. There was no electricity in those days, and it was a treadle day. Two sets of treadles. I used to get either myself or my brother out there to, uh, to help pedal. They used to have two of us. Like, he'd be treadling, and uh, I'd be treadling as well, too. I got down to the garage. Only I've motorised it now. The same one? Taking the old treadle and flower and everything on. Something that we've not been asking at all, Devin is, you know, uh, men doing things for each other, you know, like somebody's good at carpentry, uh, so they'll come along and fix, say, a window frame for, for one person, and the other one will be quite good at uh, electricity. Uh, you know, helping each other, generally. Do you remember anything of that sort, you know, with your father rather than yourself? Well, with, with Dad, there was always somebody coming up to the workshop to get something fixed. Yes. That's his workshop at home. That's at home, yes. yes. And uh, old man Holloway would be coming up because he had broken something on his uh, cat. He'd get that to fix it because there was no such thing as welding or anything like that because there was no electricity. So Dad would fashion it out with another piece of steel or a piece of iron or something like that. Like something, F something. Uh, old man Holloway, he got a Model T Ford after he did away with his uh, horse and cat. He was the first carrier in the bay with a motorised vehicle. Unfortunately, a lamppost jumped out into the middle of the road and hit him. And uh, smashed his radiator. And he brought that radiator up to Dad, and Dad unsolded the whole thing and repaired it and uh, put it all back together again. Well, it, it would be very important in these coordinates. You've got to uh, have these sort of services, you know, sort of self-service. Excuse me, I just got up to the shop, yes. The local Thank you. butcher. I can't remember this, but the local butcher used to be down at the bottom of uh, Roman Street. Yes. He used to have kerosene engine for running his uh, mincing machine, his sausage making machine, all this. He used to come up and get that. The local fishermen in those days, the Mio's and the Delabarkers, they had their, their launches, and they were always just anchored out in Rona Bay there between the wharf and Windy Point. Many a time when I've got Dad down to have a look at the engine on either the old Rofi or the Princess Alberta or one of the fishing boats because they couldn't get it going. Or he used to do that sort of thing, but he never got paid for it. But we always had plenty of fish. We always had plenty oh, of crayfish. Oh, so it was reciprocal. The local butcher, yes. Dad would go down to get his engine going and that sort of thing, and he'd come back with two or three pound sausages or a steak or something like that. So would there have been any other engineering service here in Eastbourne? No. No. That's really very interesting. As a matter of fact, he had a stamp made, Morris Baker, lighting a mechanical engineer, because uh, in his spare time he used to do a bit of moonlighting, 
in his spare time. He used to work for the, uh, the Welsh Back Lighting Company, who ran a system of gas lights. Now, we had gas lights, cardboard gas lights, right throughout our house. So we run a street. We had a gas generator out the back, running off carbide. And Dad made all this pipe right through the house, so that we had, uh, before we had electricity, we had uh, gas lights. The Welsh Back people somehow or other got on to him. He installed quite a few of these parts. In the old uh, Atkinson home, York Bay, he put one of these Welsh back lighting plants right through there, which was gas. There was another one up at the top of uh, Manuka Terrace, in what was Cable's place. That was William Cable, he had a place over the bay. He always used to come over for the weekend. Two in Dave's uh, Bay, so that's why he had the stamp made. That was usually on Saturdays or Sundays. Yes, yes. Yeah, I thought it was some quite a recent invention. Ah, the Welshback Lighting Company. This is carbon gas. Yes. Yeah. Well, then he had a, another one too that ran on benzene, a great big tank which pumped up pressurised. And that was piped right throughout the house. I'm John McDonald and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was the late Bill Baker talking to PhD student Claire Tornby back in 1981 on Bill's family life in the early decades of the last century. A big thank you to the Historical Society of Eastbourne for letting us play that interview. Part 5 airs next Thursday. Okay, time for some music. From Upper Hut's René Maurice, here's an original song called Dagger Rose.
And that was Dagger Rose from former Upper Hutt resident Rene Maurice. Okay, time for a short story. It's from a former Eastbourne resident and it dates back to 1922. The Canary by Catherine Mansfield. Recording by Rob Marland. You see that big nail to the right of the front door? I can scarcely look at it even now, and yet I could not bear to take it out. I should like to think it was there always, even after my time. I sometimes hear the next people saying, there must have been a cage hanging from there, and it comforts me. I feel he is not quite forgotten. You cannot imagine how wonderfully he sang. It was not like the singing of other canaries. And that isn't just my fancy. Often, from the window, I used to see people stop at the gate to listen, or they would lean over the fence by the mock orange for quite a long time, carried away. I suppose it sounds absurd to you. It wouldn't if you'd heard him, but it really seemed to me that he sang whole songs with a beginning and an end to them. For instance... When I'd finished the house in the afternoon and changed my blouse and brought my sewing up to the veranda here, he used to hop, hop, hop from one perch to another, tap against the bars as if to attract my attention, sip a little water just as a professional singer might, and then break into a song so exquisite that I had to put my needle down to listen to him. I can't describe it, I wish I could, but it was always the same every afternoon and I felt that I understood every note of it. I loved him. How I loved him! Perhaps it does not matter so very much what it is one loves in this world, but love something one must. Of course there was always my little house and the garden, but for some reason they were never enough. Flowers respond wonderfully, but they don't sympathise. Then I loved the evening star. Does that sound foolish? I used to go into the backyard after sunset and wait for it until it shone above the dark gum tree. I used to whisper, There you are, my darling. And just in that first moment, it seemed to be shining for me alone. It seemed to understand this, something which is like longing, and yet it is not longing. Or regret. It is more like regret. And yet, regret for what? I have much to be thankful for. But after he came into my life, I forgot the evening star. I did not need it any more. But it was strange. When the Chinaman who came to the door with birds to sell held him up in his tiny cage, and instead of fluttering, fluttering like the poor little goldfinches, he gave a faint small chirp, I found myself saying, just as I had said to the star over the gum tree, There you are, my darling. From that moment, he was mine. It surprises me even now to remember how he and I shared each other's lives. The moment I came down in the morning and took the cloth off his cage, he greeted me with a drowsy little note. I knew it meant, Mrs. 
Mrs. Then I hung him on the nail outside while I got my three young men their breakfasts, and I never brought him in until we had the house to ourselves again. Then, when the washing up was done, it was quite a little entertainment. I spread a newspaper over a corner of the table, and when I put the cage on it, he used to beat with his wings despairingly, as if he didn't know what was coming. You're a regular little actor, I used to scold him. I scraped the tray, dusted it with fresh sand, filled his seed and water tins, tucked a piece of chickweed and half a chilli between the bars, and I am perfectly certain he understood and appreciated every item of this little performance. You see, by nature he was exquisitely neat. There was never a speck on his perch, and you'd only to see him enjoy his bath to realise he had a real small passion for cleanliness. His bath was put in last, and the moment it was in, he positively leapt into it. First he fluttered one wing, then the other, then he ducked his head and dabbled his breast feathers. Drops of water were scattered all over the kitchen, but still he would not get out. I used to say to him, now that's quite enough, you're only showing off. And at last out he hopped, and, standing on one leg, he began to peck himself dry. Finally he gave a shake, a flick, a twitter, and he lifted his throat Oh, I can hardly bear to recall it. I was always cleaning the knives at the time, and it almost seemed to me the knives sang too, as I rubbed them bright on the board. Company, you see, that was what he was. Perfect company. If you have lived alone, you will realise how precious that is. Of course, there were my three young men who came in to supper every evening, and sometimes stayed in the dining-room afterwards reading the paper. But I could not expect them to be interested in the little things that made my day. Why should they be? I was nothing to them. In fact, I overheard them one evening talking about me on the stairs as the Scarecrow. No matter. It doesn't matter. Not in the least. I quite understand. They're young. Why should I mind? but I remember feeling so especially thankful that I was not quite alone that evening. I told him after they had gone out. I said, Do you know what they call Mrs? And he put his head on one side and looked at me with his little bright eye until I could not help laughing. It seemed to amuse him. Have you kept birds? If you haven't, all this must sound, perhaps, exaggerated. People have the idea that birds are heartless, cold little creatures, not like dogs or cats. My washerwoman used to say on Mondays, when she wondered why I didn't keep a nice fox terrier, there's no comfort, miss, in a canary. Untrue, dreadfully untrue. I remember one night I had had a very awful dream. Dreams can be dreadfully cruel. Even after I had woken up, I could not get over it. So I put on my dressing gown and went down to the kitchen for a glass of water. It was a winter night and raining hard. I suppose I was still half asleep, but through the kitchen window that hadn't a blind, it seemed to me the dark was staring in, spying, and suddenly I felt it was unbearable that I had no one to whom I could say, I've had such a dreadful dream, or, or hide me from the dark. 
I even covered my face for a minute, and then came a little, sweet, sweet. His cage was on the table, and the cloth had slipped, so that a chink of light shone through. Sweet, sweet, said the darling little fellow again, softly, as much as to say, I'm here, missus, I'm here. That was so beautifully comforting, that I nearly cried. And now he's gone. I shall never have another bird, another pet of any kind. How could I? When I found him, lying on his back, with his eye dim and his claws wrung, when I realised that never again should I hear my darling sing, something seemed to die in me. My heart felt hollow, as if it was his cage. I shall get over it. Of course, I must. One can get over anything in time, and people always say I have a cheerful disposition. They are quite right. I thank my God I have. All the same, without being morbid, and giving way to to memories and so on, I must confess that there does seem to me something sad in life. It is hard to say what it is. I don't mean the sorrow that we all know, like illness and poverty and death. No, it is something different. It is there, deep down. Deep down, part of one, like one's breathing. However hard I work and tire myself, I have only to stop to know it's there, waiting. I often wonder if everybody feels the same. One can never know. But isn't it extraordinary that under his sweet, joyful little singing, it was just this sadness? Ah, what is it that I heard? And that was Rob Marland reading Catherine Mansfield's The Canary. Thank you to LibraFox for making these readings available to us. And you can find more recordings on their website, which is LibraFox.org. OK, time for some more music from former Upper Hutt musicians Paul and Wayne Mason. Here they are with Shutters. I want to call you 
make matters bad. space I've had You want to find a moral for the story It's like turning water in a knob Can't get my brain around anything Cause a knot is a knot is a knot is a knot Pull down the shutters Myself and a honey cup. I got a lot of I'm John McDonald and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was Paul and Wayne Mason who returned to Expressions for Renaki on Saturday night for their 50 Years of Nature tour. You may recall I spoke to the two brothers late last year before the tour was postponed. With reduced audience numbers and careful spacing, they are hoping it will go ahead on Saturday. Now, ticket sales have been flying out the door, so you'll need to check iTicket or Expressions to see if you can get a ticket stall. Okay, next up, and staying in Upper Hut, time for more history. When in 2014, Jane Cherry talked to longtime resident Sir George Chapman about his life in the city. left the council I still retain my interests in Upper Hutt. I've been a foundation member of the Upper Hutt Chamber of Commerce so I became president, took that role for a couple of years. So you've watched it grow haven't you? Oh yes, closely. I'm also a foundation member of the um, Upper Hutt Club so I've sort of made my contribution to Upper Hutt as it were. Was it always labour through, throughout those years? Um, did it no, stay labour? No, it's, it's varied from time to time, depending on circumstances and conditions. And, but basically, it's a, it's a labour seat, caused not by Upper Hutt itself, it's caused by the, the state housing that really are needed 
in the, the lower valley, the need to add to these the totals work. It gives that sort of majority to Labour. That sort of hard left vote is always basically available to swamp the stronger right wing or centre right vote in an apartheid itself. So, you know, by 1960, I was sort of, well, looking to a fairly comfortable lifestyle as a accounting in a prosperous accounting firm. You would have had how many children by then? Uh, At least three, uh, four. Yeah, four or five. I know. <laughs> 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 and, uh, not, thinking of a, a quiet accounting life as a, one of the senior businessmen in Upper Hutt, having made my contribution to Upper Hutt. And Did you really think that that was going to be... Oh, yeah. yeah. One, no one knows their future. And, and at that time, I think at 1960, I could have safely said, well, there it is, a pleasant lifestyle, I can have a comfortable life. In the early years when I joined uh, the Upper Club, my father used to uh, enjoy coming out, having a game of snooker. So they stayed living here? Yeah. Joined the golf club, Tennis? Join the, the racing club. Play tennis, didn't you? Yeah, play yeah. tennis. Uh, yeah, I've always played tennis. I've played tennis all my life yeah. uh, until the last 10 years or so. Uh, so, pretty comfortable lifestyle looking ahead. And then? And then I made the mistake, or not, depending on your <laughs> point of view, of attending the first National Party Conference in 1960. I'd become uh, chairman of the local electorate, Herodong, a safe Labour seat. But the National Party Conference uh, entitles every electorate to three or four delegates. So I was one led the delegation from Herodong, but very much a junior grouping in a very strong, very in mind, national was a strongly rural element, very strong rural element in the National Party at that time. Very influential. That's where a lot of the votes came from, didn't they? Yeah, very influential. A lot of the electorates came from, yes. So the first meeting I went to was in Wellington. Just an unbelievable experience of five or 600 people all jammed into a room with Keith, Keith Holyoke, who'd lost the previous election in 1957 after he'd taken out from Sid Holland, looking to become Prime Minister again in November of 1960. It, it was an overwhelming experience, even for me, and I'd had you know, quite a bit of council experience. But was that, it exciting? Uh, very. It was stimulating as well. It was unbelievable. Uh, and to, for the party then to sweep on into office uh, confirmed my view that I, was on, I had the right political cause. And so uh, that committed me to going to conferences. I thought, this is something I can do even though I'm in a electorate that's really, you know, doesn't make any contribution to the National Party still. At least I can keep in touch. At conferences, because of my knowledge of Upper Hutt and its rural background and its small business background and because of my accounting and taxation in particular, when I chose to speak on taxation, I had much more knowledge than most people who were there. Most of them, delegates, were, were farmers or small business people, the sort of people I was advising 
in my role as a, as a senior partner in the firm in Upper Hutt. And that apparently uh, resonated as far as the uh, delegates were concerned. So within uh, three or four years, I was appointed to the National Party executive, one of 50 top ones in New Zealand, mainly because of my background. I represented uh, Lower Hutt, Upper Hutt and Wairapa. So those areas were all happy to, for me to represent them. Wairapa was Labour at that stage as well. So I was representing Labour seats, but making the right sort of noises on a national scale. And I learned also something that the council work had helped, not to speak too often. The last thing delegates I found wanted to hear was somebody that got up and went on and on and then got up again and went on and on and got up again and went on. No, no, none of that. I wouldn't have any of that. So that, that was very valuable experience uh, that I learned. And I settled into the, uh, the role quite happily, but I knew that within a year or so, somebody would come along that want to be representative of the National Party as far as the serious concern, and, you know, so I'd sink back to my ICG role in the, in the office there, out in the Great Worries. And the opportunity to go higher came quite unexpectedly. It arose out of the fact that the chairman of the division in the Wellington region, that's the whole of this region, regional area, which reached right up to uh, New Plymouth on one side and Hawke's Bay on the other, so it's quite a big area, the whole lower half. North Island, effectively, Ned Holt, uh, suddenly was approached to become president of the National Party in 1966. That was election year again. I was approached, unexpectedly I might say, to say, well, look, would you hold down the role of the regional chair for the next few months whilst I have a crack at the presidency, because that'll be contested, and if I don't get the presidency, well, I'll return to become chair of the division again. And you'll stay as electric chairman of Heritage. And we'll see how that works out. So I said, oh, well, you know, if, if that's what you want, I'm quite happy to help for a short time. I don't want to commit beyond that. I don't want to be too heavily committed in this process. It's all voluntary, which is not understood. These, all these roles are uh, all voluntary. So I said, OK. And Ned Holt gained the presidency. I supported him at the 1966 conference and, and I was appointed with some res considerable reservations, I might say, in passing to chair of the Wellington region. Reservations really on, on the question of my age. Well, I wasn't young at that stage, but, <laughs> but I, you know, I was in the late 30s. Well, the, that wasn't young. That's young. <laughs> <laughs> but much more important because the seniority and status of, of the big electorates that were involved. There was Keith Holyoke's Pioteer electorate That's involved. That's a big job. Yeah, there was Jack Marshall's electorate involved. There were several ministers involved. And they, they, everybody was, oh, I'm not sure about this, you know, this... this no, he's all right on this tax thing, but we're not so sure. So I took on the job of regional chair, 
and National was re-elected again in 1966. And by the time I'd sort of been there a little while, I'd, they became happy, comfortable with my style and experience. And fortunately, the background of the accounting was useful and all the speaking and debating and so forth, out of the council and so forth. And it would have been quite different. It wouldn't have been those, those meetings till three in the morning. No, no, no. Much more organised. <laughs> they found I was quite a hard chairman. <laughs> I took strong views on the chair. Oh, good. Yeah. And my view has always been, as a person in the chair, that's a leadership role. You have firm ideas. You've got to, got to be quite tough on that process. There are those that want to exceed their rights. You have to knock them back. Mm. And I had had enough background and experience to reinforce that. And did you enjoy that? Yes, I found I did. Once I'd settled it, I was very, quite reluctant initially to take it on, but I decided I'd take it on. But, you know, the time commitment was quite considerable. Travelling in an annual meeting up at New Plymouth, for example, starting at 7 o'clock at night, I'd travel up there. I've had fortune to have a secretary who was quite good, take me up there in the vehicle, have address the meeting, then return home at night to start work again the next morning. And remain a good family man. <laughs> and run your business. Yeah. Yes, it was a very demanding life. You must have a lot of energy. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> it, it all seemed better than... The early years going up to the university late at night, <laughs> I suppose that prepared me for the, the, the much more demanding life of uh, the politics that involved. And so what was it specifically about, I mean I know you've said about the National Party policy, the individual when um, thrift is something that you mention. Yes, it, it's the sense of independence uh, of ability to do one's own thing, that's what I've always felt. Mm, private enterprise. Yeah, all, all those things. Yes. And, and, you know, I have enough understanding of politics to know that when a party's being criticised, something goes wrong. It, you know, these things happen in politics. It happens in life. But it's the general thrust of a party that I'm concerned with rather than it's what happens around the edges of it that doesn't worry me a great deal. So I've, I'm very comfortable with National's general thrust, its general policy, its basic philosophy, all those things, yes. So not, not so much the personality politics, but the actual uh, foundation. Um, that's that's yes. correct. Yes. Yes, that's correct. And, and I suppose for that reason I've been always comfortable as a member of the party organisation. I've held strong views as one of the leaders in the party organisation to ensure that that basic philosophy is there within the organisation. It remains there. It's little understood that the parliamentary team is only a, a branch of That's the, the party, party that runs things, isn't it? Well, well, I mean, they're representing yes, the party. Yes, that's right. They, they represent the party, mm. yes. And so from time to time the leader is strong and he looks and he's dominant, but the party has to remain protecting that basic philosophy. And from time to time it goes into opposition and then that basic philosophy suddenly sparks up again. As a matter of interest, the first of my recognition 
by the party of what I was contributing to it. And, and of course, it, it was a standard practice in those days that, uh, you know, those that led in the party organisation, as I said, it was voluntary, uh, was appointed to something. It was in 1968. I, had, I was sitting in the office, I think, and had a call. Uh, Rob Muldoon, Minister of Finance on the line, wants to talk to you. So I said, Rob. He said, I've appointed you as the director of the Bank of New Zealand. <laughs> the most sought after role in, <laughs> in, in the public offices. So I said, thanks very much, Rob. <laughs> yes. And, and that, that was very pleasing indeed. It was recognition of the, uh, that I was offering a contribution to the party in a voluntary basis in the toughest region with the most important members of parliament sitting in it and so I was very appreciative of that and of course that helped offset the loss that was, I was incurring as mm. that, that, that's paid yeah that yep. was paid yep. yes that was paid well And that was Jane Cherry interviewing Sir George Chapman back in 2014. A big thank you to Upper Hutt Library for letting us play that interview and part five plays next week. OK, we've got time to pop down to Lower Hutt Scottish Country Dance Club and hear a recording at their 60th annual dance from Marion Anderson's dance band called Beach Dancer.
And sadly, that signals the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today, and thank you for listening to the show and for supporting Wellington Access Radio. If you have a local hut story, musician or poetry suggestion, then please make contact. We'd love to hear from you. Facebook message me or email the team, and our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz. Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hut Zone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories and my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. Join me next Thursday in the Hut Zone. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some more local music. Here's Halt and Hesitate. Hairi ra.
That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.